Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I'm Sean Lewis. And welcome to... I don't know why we're doing this, but we stick to the list for better or worse. Lake versus river. Croc versus snake. The greatest gladiator match in the history of the world. Lake Placid versus Anaconda. It's not that great, actually. No. But we'll get to that after we've uh, talked about what we've seen within the week. I was bitterly disappointed, but I think we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, Lawson, why don't you start us off? Well, this week I did go and see a movie in the cinemas. I saw The King of Staten Island, which is a dramedy directed by Judd Apatow. And it's about a young man named Scott Carlin, played by Pete Davidson. He's living with his widowed mother, who's played by Marissa Tomei, in Staten Island. And he's sort of just wandering self-destructively through his life. But he begins to really spiral when his mother starts dating again. This is a funny, moving, and clearly very personal story, and I think it's well worth watching. Pete Davidson is the co-writer, and Scott's troubles have plenty of mirrors in some of the stuff in his life. Both Scott and Davidson have lost firefighter fathers in the line of duty. Uh, Scott, in in the film, his father died in a in a fire, and Pete Davidson's father died as a first responder in 9/11. Uh, Davidson has borderline personality disorder and Scott theorizes that he has an undiagnosed mental illness. They both have Crohn's disease. The The film isn't biographical, but there's definitely this really personal feel to it. And as an actor, Davidson is just totally committed. This is as much a drama as it is a comedy. And his performance here is a really good argument for casting him in leading roles. He's got a, an electric screen presence with considerable range this might be i think the first time i've seen him cast in like a role that's not saturday night live sketches and he's really good the film embeds the audience with scott as we go through his life we we get to meet his drug dealer friends his childhood friend and now casual sex partner kelsey who's played by bell powley his college-bound sister claire who's played by maud apatow and his mother's new boyfriend, Ray, played by Bill Burr, who is also a firefighter. And that sort of triggers a worrying escalation in Scott's erratic behaviour. The The script feels really organic. Apatow is known for improvisation and sort of just coming coming with, the, with something on the page, but workshopping it with the actors and finding out where it goes. And it has that very quick natural feel to the way characters interact with each other it feels like a conversation and not a script do you know what i mean it feels very organic where they're just going back and forth and it it doesn't feel it it doesn't feel rambling but at the same time it doesn't feel like that well where we know what we're going to say before we say it kind of thing as well it's it's they know what they're saying but it's not rehearsed yeah and every, every relationship feels detailed and lived in. We get a late film pivot to raise firefighter friends that provide a really moving and satisfying emotional payoff to the story. But it also 
doesn't condescend and it doesn't offer easy answers. The cast is uniformly excellent, again anchored by Davidson. Pauli and Maud Apatow are both outstanding and they play off Pete Davidson really well. And Bill Burr, who I don't know if you're familiar with him, he's a stand-up comedian. He proves that he should also be playing a lot more leading roles. He's a very, very capable actor. And there's also a really delightful performance by Pamela Adlon as Ray's sardonic ex-wife who is just over it and over everything. Uh, and, and Steve Buscemi pops up too in a small role as the, the chief of the, the firefighters. Steve Buscemi was, before he, he became an actor, a firefighter himself and volunteered on 9-11 to go and assist in New York. If you hadn't known that already. Mm. But, uh, well, I, I actually think most people don't know that, Harley. <laughs> well, it's just something you you see on the internet popping up. Oh, sure, sure. But it's not something that, it's, it's, it's not something that Buscemi talks about. It's something that he mm. did because he felt that that was the right thing yeah, to do. Yeah, definitely. You don't come out the womb knowing this. But he's he's got this very quiet, compassionate performance, which really works. Uh, the movie just has a whole lot of heart to it, and it manages to be both raw and incredibly incredibly amusing. I recommend it. Um, I'm not entirely confident that cinemas are going to remain open, given the way things seem to be going at the moment, but... Uh, if you get the chance to check it out, then by all means do so. Well, Lake Placid Legacy uh, is the final Lake Placid movie. I still had one more of these to watch. We we lost a lot of my audio into what we've been watching last week, and so you won't be able to hear my detailed thoughts on the other Lake Placid movies. But this is the final one, or at least the final released one. I'm not entirely sure that sci-fi isn't going to continue with this in some way. But this is directed by Daryl Root, and it is again, as I, as you might have already surmised, a sci-fi original movie. And it is about a, a group of environmental guerrilla activists who check out a mysterious abandoned pharmaceutical research lab on an isolated inland island, only to discover that the deadly experiment left behind is still roaming the area and eating up trespassers. Deadly experiment's a crocodile. You know, yeah. Lake Placid movie. Um, it's not going to be a leprechaun. This is a step back up on the food chain from Lake Placid versus Anaconda. Okay, that's good. I spoke in the Lost Audio last week, which listeners, you know, you should be really, really uh, unhappy that we lost all that because I think it was absolutely the best work that we've ever done. But, <laughs> but I spoke on, on that last week about the sort of mounting professionalism in the Lake Placid movies. And we will get to Lake Placid versus Anaconda, but suffice it to say that is not a trend that continues when we hit Lake Placid versus Anaconda. It is, however, back in Lake Placid legacy. This is the darkest, grittiest, most modern of the Lake Placid movies, and it ends this very disreputable series on a high-ish note. It's a very classic monster movie setting. Isolated area, no way out, mysterious backstory. It's very effective. It makes good use of the forested island exteriors along with the old, unlit and abandoned tunnels and laboratories. It's got a good creepy feel to it. It takes place mostly at night, and so it uses the lighting opportunities accordingly. There's a lot of really cool use of flares, like, you know, that the yeah. type that you'd hold in your hand, the red flares. It's that lights everything and lights the crocodile and the shadows with this red glow. It's, it looks pretty good. Decent tone and atmosphere, especially considering its predecessors. 
We get, as I mentioned last week, an explanation for the crocodile that it's been crossbred with an extinct crocodile from years ago. I'm happy enough to get the explanation, but I did kind of dig the idea that it was just an awesome crocodile that was able to swim across continents. The story here is hardly groundbreaking, but it drives things along. After the, the crocodile turns up, it becomes about getting off the island and the characters are separated from each other. There's some fun mystery build-up with the crocodile. I mean, we all we all know what's going on here. It's called Lake Placid Legacy, but it doesn't reveal the crocodile properly until about halfway through. That's sort of like, a, ooh, what is it kind of thing, which would work better if it wasn't called Lake Placid. But the <laughs> strategy of keeping the croc obscured in shadow for so long works well, the CGI is acceptable, but only for a cheap B-budget movie. Biggest failure here is the poor characters and the uninteresting actors. All of these people are unlikable or personality-free. All of these petty grievances within the group are broached, but they're never properly explored, for which, frankly, I am thankful. And no one has anything in particular to make them interesting as people. The actors are all just bored, but the worst offender is Cy Bennett as a BuzzFeed journalist who is shadowing these activists to write an article about them. Even putting aside that I don't think that's how journalism works, I don't think that you are just because you're a journalist, allowed to join people in the breaking into of different places just because you're a journalist. There are embedded journalists in certain areas and certain, like, war zones and stuff like that, but you're not actually allowed to take part in any sort of criminal activity. Exactly. That's that's what I'm saying. She's just following along, um, breaking into these places with them, and it's like, oh, it's okay, because I'm a journalist, I'm writing an article about it. Like, she's not going to get arrested when she puts no, that online. Sh- she like, would be. She, w- she would definitely be. Yeah. It is a story that BuzzFeed would cover. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's Cy Bennett who plays this woman. I mean, you'd think that there wasn't any crocodile whatsoever, given the lack of reaction that she gives. But also... Joe Pantoliano inexplicably turns up in this movie, continuing the the sci-fi movie tradition of dragging in supporting actors of note for a bewildering extended cameo. It's very odd. He's got like three scenes. Credit to him, I mean, he's trying to map out a character here, but he can't manage it with so little to work with. In any case, it's a satisfying end to a not very good series. It represents the Lake Placid Anaconda franchise at its best? Um, dumb and terrible, but entertaining to watch. I think this whole enterprise was an ill thought out. Probably. And, and it's on you. That's, this is true. We could have watched Frankenfish last week instead. Um. You know, I kind of prefer what we had. In any case, uh, I, I continued on. I watched Volcano, which is a disaster movie. It's directed by a guy named Mick Jackson, who directed a, a BBC movie. I think it was a BBC called Threads. Um, which was is fantastic. I love it. It's directed by a guy named Mick Jackson, who directed a, a movie for the BBC called Threads, which I really, I mean, I love it. It's it's about a, a nuclear attack, a nuclear fallout, and it's like the most meticulous, uh, scientifically based, just harrowing version of that that I've ever seen on film. It's all about like what would actually happen if this went down. This is not nearly as scientifically based. It is about an earthquake that unleashes a hidden volcano beneath Los Angeles. <laughs> and the city's emergency management chief, a guy named Mike Rourke, who is played by Tommy Lee Jones, and a geologist named Dr. Amy Barnes, who is played by Anne Haish, 
try to contain the damage as lava floods the streets. This is the second of the dueling volcano movies. I I already talked about Dante's Peak a few weeks ago. The two dueling volcano movies that came out in 1997. And this comes off the worst in the comparison. But it's a fun, if deeply unscientific, disaster flick. And I am, as previously established, a sucker for disaster flicks. It devotes almost no time to character. There's kind of the... I mean, to bring up another thing we talked about a while back is Independence Day. And how Independence Day just starts off. There's the spaceship right in the first scene. And you compare that to War of the Worlds with all of its dialogue and character building and and moving up and establishing tone and atmosphere. And being inexplicably a movie that you absolutely love. Yeah, it's great. Um, But but that's sort of the dynamic here between this and Dante's Peak, whereas Dante's Peak is the War of the Worlds, setting up the characters, setting up the atmosphere, like building things up. Volcanoes just like, volcanoes, lava, let's go. Like the moment that the movie starts rolling. This is worse than Independence Day, though. We're left with people who don't seem to exist beyond their occupations. Rourke has a teenage daughter who is hopeless and has extremely poor decision-making skills in crisis situations. We've got another character who has an utterly pointless three-scene subplot about her asshole husband. I mean, the actors, they do... I honestly thought you were going to say pointless side plot about her asshole. And I was going to be very confused. John would really connect to the IBS of that. Oh, come on. (laughs) You you deserve it for grinding us to a halt like that. Come on. Sorry. Okay. It's a different sort of volcano. Jesus. (laughs) Jesus Christ. The Ring of Fire. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the actors do what's asked of them, but this is no one's best work. I mean, none of it's done with any commitment or interest. The filmmakers also, they only care about the volcano. And the volcano, as I said, fires off pretty early. Things start to go wrong right away, and that's where the movie shines. Jackson, as he was in Threads, is excellent at directing scenes of violent chaos. Windows exploding from the sheer force of what's going on about the place. Molten rock raining down, the ever-approaching field of magma as, as Rourke and Barnes try to figure out a way to keep it contained. Cars field flipping over. Field of lava, over. right? Because magma is only when it's inside the Earth. Uh, sure. I don't know geology, so you might be right. Lava, sure. <laughs> the cars flipping over, triage in these ash-strewn streets as people are trying to, like, treat people it's really gripping stuff and it's the best part of the film it's just watching professional people try to manage a disaster zone when the movie shifts to actually solving the problem it becomes laughable it's totally unbelievable the writers struggle to find a solution but the whole thing just peters out Uh, i thought that there must be more but no that was actually the end of the movie and and to make matters worse the movie has the gall the absolute unmitigated gall to attempt the race relations subplot that frequently references stuff like the rodney king uh episodes in in los angeles so we can get this hackneyed moment where the racist cop and the black civilian team up to help save the day there's a particularly it's so particularly tone deaf especially watching it at the moment and there is worse still an extraordinary like i could not believe it when i saw this scene they get to the end and one of the characters is trying to help a lost kid find his parents and he's like what is he what do they look like what do they look like and the kid looks around and he looks at all these people 
and they've all got ash on them. And he says, they all look the same. It's, it has all the delicacy and intelligence of a drunk rhinoceros. It's moronic and kind of offensive. What do those two characters do to save the the day? Do they shake hands in front of the volcano and the volcano is like, oh, that's nice. They're getting along. Oh, they they participate in this stupid scheme that Tommy Lee Jones has got to halt the flow of the lava, which is ridiculous, but whatever. Do they convince the volcano not to? (laughs) No, no, they block it with steel. It's stupid. It's real <laughs> stupid. They create this they create this cul-de-sac with like overturned buses and stuff. It's moronic. And then they collapse a building in its way oh. as well. The special effects are a mixed bag. Some of them hold up really well, especially the practical work, but there are plenty of awful post-production effects like these poorly aged CG and compositing. Numerous moments are clearly still images or matte paintings. Jackson apparently couldn't decide what he wanted on the day as well. This is my surmising because there's an inordinate amount of sped up and slowed down footage uh, in that's clearly done in post. You know how when you you slow things down in post, it has that juddery feel. It's not smooth yeah, slow motion. Yeah, yeah. So you get a lot of that and you get um, weirdly like sped up footage as as well in spots stuff that you're clearly not intended to notice but if you're looking carefully you can see humans moving around benny hill style that's Um, a weird choice yeah it's it's only to it just seems like he didn't really know what he wanted on the day and how he was going to edit it all together so when they got to that point he was forced to do that that kind of post-production work to emphasize certain things or to make a shot work in a specific way it's bad it's not good it's got nothing on dante's peak which was brilliant technically two last fun facts the tagline of this movie the coast is toast okay also kevin feige worked on this movie Ah. as an assistant to the producer it's kind of amazing isn't it that you know yeah 23 years later, he's heading the biggest franchise ever in all of movies. In any case, this just didn't fare well, uh, as in the the battle between the Volcano movies. The better movie, Dante's Peak, won out. That said, if you're a fan of disaster films, this is an enjoyable diversion if you can get past the extremely clumsy script and the sheer lack of believability. It is on Foxtel now in Australia, if anybody is interested. I next watched The Fifth Element, which is a science fiction adventure directed by Luc Besson. It is set in the 2200s, and there is this legendary source of evil that is never quite defined that is inching closer to Earth, and a soldier-turned-taxi driver named Corbin Dallas, who's played by Bruce Willis, meets a mysterious young woman named Lilo, who's played by Mila Jovovich, who holds the secret to defeating the oncoming darkness, which is visualized as this sort of moving mass of darkness that is either sentient or a ship of some kind. Again, they don't really go into it, and I think that's actually really effective. It's very evocative. But Dallas must help her accomplish her goal as a variety of forces work against them. I love this movie. You both need to watch it. It is wild and colorful and energetic if we weren't locked into doing lake placid versus anaconda this week this is absolutely the one that i would have gotten you two to watch it draws on very classic adventure archetypes to great effect 
legendary evil, these these mythical guardians assigned to protect everyone from this legendary evil, uh, find special stones to unlock a secret weapon. I mean, it's old school fairy tale stuff. That's it's Zelda. That's well, it predates Zelda quite a bit, but it it is melded spectacularly to one of the most vibrant on-screen futuristic settings ever. Um, it's sprawling. It's incredibly effective universe building that gives a subversive spin to the stuff. Everything's bright and colourful and full of personality. I mean, you think of how how dull and washed out futuristic environments tend to look in movies and this is like the total opposite think of how how dull everything looked 100 like think of what 1920 looked like in comparison today with all of like the bright signs and the neons and everyone wearing you know flashy looking clothes this imagines that that progression continues as we go another hundred years into the future it's like the 80s never stopped exactly um that's the idea here. The, the setting is just fantastic. I mean, I want an expanded universe here. I want a TV show. I want books based in this world. It's a really, really great setting. There are lots of cool detail around the edges. Things are never spelled out. There's a motorcycle on the street trying to prove to me how awesome he is. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping that. Radical, man. I, I just have no patience for it. Yes, brum, brum. Off you go. <laughs> Sorry, there are, there are lots of cool detail around the edges. Things are never spelled out. You don't get lots of backstory and exposition on what the threat really is. There is a a moment in the movie where someone communicates from the from whatever it is to one of the characters and sort of has this very threatening raspy voice sort of thing. Calls himself Mister Shadow. Of course and, he does. And of course he does. What a just, nerd. just the sheer act of talking to this guy causes the character to start bleeding from the head. Like, whatever, some pressure inside the head or something, and just all of a sudden, like he's sweating blood. It's It causes this intense physical reaction. And you never get... Yeah, it's the stress of talking to a dickhead who calls himself Mr. Shadow. Well, it's just all of this very cool creepy stuff around the edge that you never get the explain the explanation for but it's so evocative you you don't you don't get the history of the protector race and the bad guys and how they've been facing off with each other once every 3000 years for eternity apparently the world feels lived in and consistent it feels like the people in it know what the world is and the filmmakers know what the world is, so we don't need to. It feels like we're just getting this snapshot, you know? There's a real sense of a larger universe that's existing just outside the frame. You get a lot of fun, very likeable characters. Bruce Willis as Dallas is the film's only real letdown. He's left in a comparatively dry supporting role a lot of the time. Willis also tries to meld his John McCain stick on here in a way that I think is pretty unsuccessful, but he's surrounded by brilliant performances. This is Mila Jovovich's star-making role. It's the best she's ever been. Ian Holm is great uh, as this smart but somewhat bumbling keeper of knowledge, and Gary Oldman is almost unrecognisable in a, in a scenery-chewing role as a cutthroat industrialist with a cheesy Texas accent capitalising on the situation. Chris Tucker 
is also in this movie in a turn that is incredibly divisive as as a campy over-the-top broadcaster I fall on the side of loving it. I think it works so well with what this movie's going in and with, with the way Luc Besson gives this movie so much flair and energy, I think it works. I absolutely see how some people could look at it and think that it was the most annoying thing ever put to celluloid, though. It's technically stunning. Besson films and edits things with a freneticism and energy that left me with a huge smile on my face. There's just so much style. It's wild and idiosyncratic and more than a little bit deranged. You you get a brav- just a bravura f- sequence that cuts between a a fight between Mila Jovovich and a bunch of aliens and this futuristic pop opera that this this blue lady with tentacles is singing. Oh, that. Yeah. It, it's just terrific design. It's it's from costumes to sets to entirely practical aliens. People dress like they're in the imagination of a rogue 80s fashion designer. You get a great <laughs> score by Eric Serra. It all adds to this totally unique and extremely out there presentation. It's totally my speed. You, you have to see this. It's so up your alley. It's beautiful clever energetic sci-fi adventure stuff i don't understand how they haven't returned to this in some way whether it's a sequel or a tv show or whatever it seems primed actually for like a kind of streaming or cable tv show with all of the the big universe stuff going on there and it was successful and it's become a cult film over the years i mean i don't often say so enthusiastically you guys have to see this but you guys have to see this. It's If anyone's interested, it is available in Australia for free streaming on SBS On Demand. I next watched Hercules, which is an animated children's fantasy musical. directed by Another Ro- thing that we could have been talking about. Mm-hmm. Directed by Ron Clements and John Musker. It is very loosely inspired by the legend of Hercules. <laughs> uh, or Heracles, or however you want to yeah. say it. Honey, you mean Hercules! Well, Hercules is the Roman pronunciation. Yeah. And, you know, they're they're not doing the Roman myths. They're doing the Greek myths, so it should technically be Heracles. But everyone knows it's Hercules, so what are you going to do? But Hades, voiced by James Woods, is planning to launch a coup against Zeus, played by Rip Torn. But is he's concerned about a prophecy that says he will be unsuccessful if Zeus's son, Hercules, currently an infant, is around to challenge him. So he sends his minions to kill the kid, but they bungle the the poisoning. They try to poison him, doesn't quite work, and instead it makes him mortal with extraordinary strength instead. So he's unable to stay on Mount Olympus because he's not immortal anymore. And he ends up cared for by a human couple and grows up to be Hercules, who's voiced as an adult by Tate Donovan, who learns of his heritage and sets out to be a hero, attracting the attention and consternation of Hades. I haven't seen this movie in at least 15 years. It's good, but it's not as light on its feet as I remembered it being. It's very plotty, as you probably heard from that that description, more so than a lot of Disney animated films. It's probably, I think, because of the mythological ties. Speaking of which, lots of liberties taken with the mythological ties. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In this movie, Hera is presented as Hercules' mother, but in the actual myth, uh, Zeus is... Hercules is the product of one of Zeus's... uh, Many sex crimes. Many sex crimes, yes. (laughs) Cheating and raping and generally being awful. Um, And 
Hera is very jealous of Hercules because, you know, he's the product of he's out of wedlock of this betrayal by her husband. So she she is the one in the, the myths that tries to kill him. And And Hades couldn't give two shits. Like he's chilling out in the underworld and he loves it. Hades is not evil in the mythology. This is sort of something that modern Western culture has assigned to him because we associate death and the underworld with evil because of you know a lot of Judeo-Christian stuff. He's also the wealthiest of the Olympian yeah. gods because he, he owns everything like, inside the earth. The thing is, there's a big deal made about being an Olympian god in Greek mythology. Hades doesn't care. Yeah. He knows that he has a seat at the table, but he has... The most important job out of the yeah, bunch. and he's got very little interest in going up there. And he's not this... He's not supposed to be this evil guy in the mythology. He's, he's like, doing this important job. He's not this... this. He's, he's taking care of all the dead souls, right? It's yeah, not it's necess- interesting that Poseidon is actually the one in the myths. Yeah. Who is jealous of his brother. Yeah, the original story goes a whole lot darker. We get introduced to Megara, who is... Uh, also known as Meg in this movie, because, of course, this is a children's film. She's voiced here by Susan Egan. Um, in the myths, she is Hercules' first wife, who Hera manipulates into murdering along with his children, which prompts the, the trials of Hercules, the, str- the labours, um, to try and, you know, redeem himself. So there's a lot of that hanging over this movie, if you know that that's there. But... Um, who cares, really? Because this is just a children's film that's building an original story with the trappings of legend, and it does a decent job of that. The setting of ancient Greece is a cool style, and the film looks gorgeous. Oh, yeah. It's got great animation and design. It hits the requisite mythological mainstays like Titans, the Fates, the Winged Horse, Pegasus, the Satyrs, Philoctetes, um, who's played by Danny DeVito, the Satyr. Uh, lots of fun gags about the satyr's horniness from myth. But Hercules is, is setting about embarking on heroic tasks to become a god, which is a simplistic and much sanitized version of the previously mentioned 12 labors in the myths. A lot of fun references and details here for those that are in the know. But the core conflict is Hades' manipulation of Meg. She gave her soul to save a man who substituted subsequently left her and she's become jaded and cynical in the aftermath she's sort of the opposite of hercules who is very oh boy you know isn't the world wonderful kind of thing yeah of course they hit it off because opposites attract in movies at least and hades is using her for info it's not the best disney romance but it works and egan gives meg a fantastic edge Hades yeah. is a very effective villain, well played by James Woods with brilliantly played a cool design. He's sort of got, you know, this this blue flame on his head that changes color and intensity the more angry he gets. John Lithgow was originally cast as Hades, and now, now he would have been good, but he wouldn't have brought the sort of the quick salesman edge that james woods does a lot of that was woods a lot of that was improv by woods and Mm. for whatever reason i can't seem to find anything on the public record as to why but he lithgow recorded all of his dialogue but was replaced after having done so release the lithgow cut the film is also noticeably more violent than a lot of disney movies there's a lot of punches there's a beheaded hydra complete with shots of the stump yeah um 
It conjures a fun, classical kind of action. There's a real swords and sandals influence here. It is, however, flabby and bloated. It should be a lot more zippy than it is. It, it needs to be a... It needs to lose five or ten minutes. It's a little longer than most of the Disney animated movies of this period. It's got inconsistent pacing, especially in the middle. That damages the flow of the movie, which ultimately becomes a real problem. The music here is hit or miss as the Renaissance approaches its end uh, for the Disney animated musicals. It's The lyrics are frequently clumsy and awkward, but Alan Menken's score holds up its end of the bargain. There are still a few bangers, though. I Won't Say I'm In Love is oh, yeah. the, the best song in the film. And the the stuff that the muses, they're represented here as these, these dancing ladies on pottery <laughs> designs um, that sort of work as the narrators, and their stuff is quite fun. They're the Greek chorus. I, I Yeah, I really love a lot of the music in this. I love Go The Distance. Just something about how the orchestration of the song and how it moves, how it shows the journey. I really, really love that. That's fair enough, but I just feel like also it's just sort of... It's it's just a repeat at this point of all of the I wants of all of the other Disney movies. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, we're, get it, we're starting to get that really formulaic. And I think there are a few... Fewer standouts here, though. I think this is probably the weakest of the musicals in the Renaissance up to this point. I enjoyed it, but it's not as good as I remembered. It has inconsistent songs and pacing problems that mar it, but the trappings of the setting and the pulpy adventure myth it creates make it worthwhile. It's, of course, streaming on Disney+, Plus, but also, weirdly, Tubi. <laughs> what do you know? What the fuck? <laughs> What the fuck? How? How? I don't know. Tubi, it's a strange... Jesus. Strange system. How How do they just sort of snipe these... I'm sure it's to mess with us. Us, specifically. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're probably the only people using Tubi. We're not the only people using Tubi. Well, the only people talking about it this much. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, I next watch Uncle Sam, which is a slasher movie directed by William Lustig. It is about a... a, You've heard of this, I take it. Oh, yeah, we've heard about it. It is about a man named Sam Harper, who is played by an actor who insists on being called David Shark Frelick. Jesus. Have some self-respect, bud. Anyway, Sam Harper is an abusive arsehole to his wife and sister. He enlists in the Gulf War and is killed in a friendly fire incident. When his body is shipped home, as the town prepares for a 4th of July weekend... He reanimates with no explanation, donning an Uncle Sam outfit to hide his decay. Uh, Uncle Sam, for anyone not in the know, though that he's the figure from all of those recruitment posters in America in World War II. The I want you. He has the top hat with the American design on it. He wears the, the flag outfit. He's got the beard and the white hair and everything. Kind of a Lincoln-esque look. Yeah. Anyway, he, he, he dons that that outfit, including a mask, to hide the decay of his body. And he sets about killing people who he feels are disrespecting America. This has some really interesting ideas that it just doesn't capitalize on. It comes off a little bit dull at, in the end. Have you guys actually seen it? No, I uh, haven't actually seen no, it. I haven't seen I have it, but I have seen videos about it. Yeah. The poster of it is pretty good. It's of a zombie... It's basically of the old recruitment posters, the I want you recruitment posters, but it's a zombie Uncle Sam instead of regular Uncle Sam. And the tagline is, I want you, 
dead. Yeah, that works. All right. This is a movie with thematic ambitions. It clearly wants to make a statement about war and about chest-thumping militarism. Sam's targets are a checklist of jingoistic punching bags, draft dodgers, flag burners, tax evaders, and a guy who Roseanne bars the national anthem uh, at a ceremony. Have you guys seen Roseanne Barr's mangling yep. of the American act? Oh, yeah. my God. That, how extraordinary is that? And- I, I'm not really much of one for patriotism, but particularly American patriotism, which can be a real double-edged sword, but... Come on, man. It's a national anthem. And somehow, inexplicably, she's become a darling of the Make America Great Again crowd. But whatever. Um, Who knows? Roseanne Barr is a very interesting scenario. It doesn't make much sense. None of Oh, it, yeah. The, the arc of her life is fascinating. None of it follows a three-act structure. Not, none of it follows the hero's journey. It's, it's going to make a very, it's very pure weird realism. Movie. Yeah, it's going to make a weird movie. Anyways, now that we've gotten onto our a bit off topic on the subject of Roseanne Barr, Sam himself in this movie is just a scumbag. He's a wife beater. He abused his sister. It is implied sexually. And another veteran describes him as enjoying killing. That's the reason he went to war. Not because he cared about his country, but because he wanted to kill for the government. The movie is working towards some point about the false morality of that kind of a person, and it's making swipes at US foreign policy as it goes. This is all set against Sam's nephew, Jody, because Sam is literally Uncle Sam. And it's Jody is played by Christopher Ogden, and he is radicalized. He is in awe of his uncle. He wants to be just like him. There is a, a quote in this movie where he, you know, goes to his room and is playing army man and he says I'm going to join the army and do what the president tells me because he knows better. I mean, this is not, uh, this is on the nose. It's not trying to hide what it's saying here. His arc is, I suppose, a journey towards being more of a critical thinker and learning the truth of his uncle's personality. Well, that's good. You, you get this Isaac Hayes character as well, who lost a leg in Korea and offers a sensible counterweight, which reinforces the fact that this isn't an anti-soldier movie, but an anti-war and anti-jingoism movie. Isaac Hayes is kind of what you'd want a soldier to be. He's someone who has yeah. taken it all very seriously and is aware of the sacrifices that it takes. So it is not, it's not going to necessarily offend people yeah. uh, by picking on soldiers. That's not what it's doing here. That's all admirable, but it doesn't have the script or the acting talent to pull it off. And the point just sort of putters out and never lands. It's really clumsy satire that just doesn't get a good punch in, despite its audacious ideas. Jody is especially a problem. Neither Ogden or the script sells the transformation. Ogden is a particularly bland child actor. He has this blank expression and emotionless tone that makes any character arc or emotional journey utterly unbelievable. The movie gradually devolves into a mildly amusing but generally dull slasher at set at a 4th of July celebration. The second half is literally just Sam in an Uncle Sam outfit wandering around and killing people in vaguely political ways like impaling someone with a flag or shooting a Lincoln cosplayer in the head or axing a guy with a replica of Washington's hatchet, which, if you're aware of the Washington mythology, the hatchet is a big part of it. It also introduces a totally out-of-left-field new character in the third act, of a blind, disabled boy who was burned by fireworks in a, a 
you know, playing with his friends gone awry. So it sort of draws this stupid, ill-advised comparison between the friendly fire that killed Uncle Sam and the friendly fire that burned and blinded this little boy. And so Uncle Sam finds this inexplicable kinship with him. Sure, that's nice, I guess. None of this has the energy or the deafness to impress, despite some decent setups from Lustig. The script is too clunky, and the actors, save for Hayes and a slumming at Robert Forster, are all average to terrible. All the potential of the premise is squandered, and it renders the film just another budget slasher. If you squint, you can see a version of this movie that makes good on its fascinating ideas and is a subversive cult classic that is not the version that was made that gets less and less interesting the version that was made as it adheres to formula rather than trying to make a jump to something that is truly special it is of course available for streaming on tubing really running the gamut aren't they i next watched mrs brown which also depending on where you saw it is also known as her majesty mrs brown It is a historical drama directed by John Madden. It is the true story of Queen Victoria, who is played here by Judi Dench. After her beloved husband Albert dies, she hides herself away from the world, ignoring her duties as monarch. But in desperation, her staff calls on Albert's former Scottish servant, John Brown, who is played by Billy Connolly, to take her riding in the hopes that it's going to draw her out of her grief. Brown is really blunt and he ignores protocol, which is a trait that the Queen comes to respect. But their close friendship begins to cause political problems. This is a perfectly nice historical drama without much to set it apart from others of its type. It's one of those movies that you watch and you think, old people probably love this. It's it's stiff, it's stuffy, and it's very conservative in approach, offering... A window into the private goings-on of the royal household, complete with all of the dehumanising class structures and protocols. And it all goes exactly how you'd expect. Victoria likes the fact that someone treats her like a human being for once, and the other members of the upper classes resent Brown for his forwardness and his lowly origins. The movie is named Mrs. Brown because that was the joke everyone made behind the Queen's back, that she was Mrs. Brown now. You've seen this dynamic many times, and this one doesn't do much different, but it plays the familiar notes well, and the trappings of royalty in the 1860s, and a great use of the Scottish Highlands give it a bit of personality. The bigger problem here is that it's got an inability to get into the characters' heads. For far too much of the film, Brown and Victoria are just inscrutable. It took me a long time to figure out if Brown was manipulative or genuine, and though his inner workings are eventually laid bare. This is probably a movie that's more about him than it is Victoria. The Queen is still at an emotional remove by the movie's end. She's so statuesque and her place in the world is so rigidly defined by title that it's hard to see deeper in what this movie does. Judi Dench's performance is the film's greatest asset. It was her first Oscar nomination. And I think that she's keyed in that that detachment in this story is a feature, not a bug. She plays Victoria as someone who is insulated from everyone around her, only showing real warmth with Brown. It's a subdued performance, but it's a good one, and it's the right choice given the script's uh, point of view, which is the Brown one. Still hard to find an emotional hook here, though, especially in the early goings as a result of all that, but a lot of that is also a script problem. The script jumps through time too often, and it skips crucial parts of development of the relationship. 
it adds to the confusion over Brown's motives and makes certain scenes scenes like just seem like too far of a jump. Like he's he's moved too far in the relationship um, in too short of a time. There's this scene way too early on when we haven't seen enough of the relationship to develop where he blocks the, the Queen's son from going to see her. And uh, when he tries to insist, he grabs... He grabs the heir to the throne, this servant, pushes him up against the wall and screams into his face in that Billy Connolly way, why don't you just leave us alone? <laughs> and it's like, what? We haven't seen nearly enough to understand what the hell, where the hell this came from. It also underdevelops a pretty interesting side plot as the Queen's absence fuels a Republican movement prompting worry from the, the Tory Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, who's played by Anthony Sher. Uh, it, it needed an extra scene or two, and Disraeli makes for yet another character with a cloudy personality, but Cher's performance is the film's most entertaining, even if he does seem like he's from another movie. It's a very funny, comedic performance. And he and Connolly share the best scene, which gives Disraeli some unexpected shading as well. This is a perfectly unobjectionable movie that's designed not to offend anyone. It's about as traditional as you can imagine, and it carries out the formula decently, save for a frustrating lack of insight into most of its characters. It's pleasant and unremarkable. It's available for streaming on Amazon Prime Video if anyone is interested. Lastly this week, I watched Victoria and Abdul, which... It's sort of, an, I suppose, an unofficial sequel to Mrs. Brown. It doesn't actually have much of a connection there. The only the only holdover, really, is Judy Dench as Queen Victoria. She played Queen Victoria again 20 years after Mrs. Brown for this film, so I've sort of counted it as a series. But this is, again, a historical drama. It's directed by Stephen Frears, and it's based on the non-fiction book by Shrabani Basu of the same name. It details the relationship between an, a now-aging Queen Victoria and Abdul Karim, who's played by Ali Fazal. He's an Indian servant that she's become very close to in her final years, much to the chagrin of all of the racists in high society and in her own household staff. It's very sweet, and it's surprisingly funny, but it features quite a few things that people will likely find problematic. Uh... There's a comparison to make between the two movies that I think is kind of unavoidable, given that I watched them back to back. It's perhaps a little unfair to directly compare them, given how tenuous the connection is. But this is a much more enjoyable movie than Mrs. Brown. It's warm and quick-footed and not nearly as stuffy. It's got an energetic pace and tone that carries over into Freer's nimble direction. It looks good. It's got more of a budget, and it actually makes the castle look like an imp an appealing place to live, rather than a dark, cold, dingy, 1800s, you know, stonework building. It's a lot funnier than you'd expect. It veers close to being a straight-out comedy at times. It's It's got a very witty script by Lee Hall, who has a bizarre resume, by the way. This, War Horse, Rocket Man, and Cats... It's very, it's a very strange filmography, but it finds the humor in the absurdities of protocol, which is something that Frears clocks onto as well in his direction. People complain about Abdul, for instance. You know, there are all of these scenes. There's this one scene that stands out actually, where you know the Queen's son is complaining to the Queen about how this looks and everything, and they have this this huge 
you know, fight. The the son threatens to have the queen declared insane. Judy Dench gets this great monologue about how she is not insane, about how they're all racist, about how they're being terrible. I'm 81 years of age. I've had nine children and 42 grandchildren and have almost a billion citizens. I have rheumatism, a collapsed uterus, and morbidly obese, and deaf in one ear. I have known 11 prime ministers and passed 2,347 pieces of legislation. I've been in office 62 years, 234 days. Thus, I am the longest-serving monarch in world history. I'm responsible for five households and a staff of over 3,000. I am cantankerous, boring, greedy, fat, ill-tempered, at times selfish and myopic, both metaphorically and literally. I am perhaps disagreeably attached to power and should not have smashed the Emperor of Russia's egg. But I am anything but insane. And then she gets up to leave, and it clocks over into the corner of the room and reveals that Abdul's been there the whole time as he opens the door for the Queen as she exits. <laughs> like, it's it's got that, like, Freer's clocks onto that weirdness of protocol and the weirdness of the hierarchy and social structures, and he he uses it quite interestingly as in his direction. It's warm and it's charming. It has that tone that feels comfortable and cosy, if unchallenging. Don't go in expecting big questions and you won't be disappointed. Ali Fazal is good, as are Michael Gambon, Tim Pigott-Smith, Paul Higgins and Eddie Izzard in supporting roles, but Dench just blows the doors off. All of the problems in Mrs. Brown... Um, about getting into the characters' mindsets are all gone. Victoria is much more open and vulnerable. It's more of a two-hander between queen and servant as well. We're seeing through both characters' eyes now. She gets that great speech, which I will actually text a link to you, Jean, to put in as audio because it is brilliant. It shows off Dench's power as an actress, but the movie has complicated issues of colonialism going on here. I can only speak about the movie. I can't vouch one way or the other for the accuracy, although I do recall that there was a mild hubbub upon its release. Regardless, there is a frankly willful blindness that the movie has towards the British Empire's actions in India that is going to piss some people off. Yeah. I'm of the type that can enjoy things, even if they make me raise my eyebrows at times. But if you can't do that then seeing Abdul literally kiss this old white lady's feet as she presides over the occupation of his home country is going to chafe. The movie pays a few bits of lip service to it, um, but it's it's so surface level as to become pointless. And there's, like, one of the lip service they pay to it is is actually played for laughs. You get another Indian servant that is accompanied um, Abdul and is, just complains about the British people all the all the way through the movie, and that's played for laughs. And that's like his is the only voice where we get to hear, you know, dissatisfaction with British rule, and it's played as a joke. 
Um, that's yikes. Yeah. Victoria is just presented as this nice old lady that's totally insulated from the actions of her empire. And Abdul is, frankly, a suck-up. He goes out of his way every opportunity that he can to show the queen how much he loves her. He's a full-on royal fanatic. If he was around today, he'd be the type buying commemorative plates and throwing street parties every royal wedding. If you can get past the admittedly muddled optics of the thing, Victoria and Abdul is a sweet, genuinely funny, and surprisingly spry bit of pop myth-making, though. And the strong cast, especially Dench, make a real impact. So now that I've finished off within the week, what have you guys been watching? Well, we watched all of these uh, things together. The first thing we watched was a comedy film on Amazon Prime called The Very Excellent Mr. Dundee. You'll recall that we saw the trailer for it in front of some of the movies we watched. We did, yes. This is a film based on a fictionalized... Yeah, uh, Paul Hogan. Paul Hogan, of course, being the actor who played Crocodile Dundee. And he's an Australian legend, basically. Uh, Aussie legend. I know him more for his excellent sources. Yes. <laughs> uh, the Wrong Hogan. The, the, advertisers, the advertisements say... It's the say, same one, John. A what? It's yeah, the same a- one. He has a line of pasta sources. His yeah. face is on the, on the logo. Yeah, it's Hogan's. Wow. Yeah. Good for him. The advertisements for this movie say, ask, where has he been? Know where he's been. We know where he's been. This is a fictionalized world that apparently both forgot about and yet extremely cares about what Paul Hogan does. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's this weird... It's this weird... Zorro universe where every little faux pas that Paul Hogan makes and the world does not let up on him. Every little faux pas, every little moment where the press can say something mean about him or whatever, they'll do it, but also they ask the question routinely, oh, whatever happened to Crocodile Dundee? And it's like, I'm sorry, what is this world? It's like, you can't have both. This is a world in which Paulie Paulie Shaw is is having a a resurgence. Okay, this is the darkest timeline. Yeah. Apparently in this... John Chevy Cleese Cha- is driving for Uber. No, he's dri- he's just driving for himself. He doesn't even have a license. Jesus. Uh, this is a world where Wayne Knight goes over to... Wayne Knight being Newman. Newman. So they're all playing themselves. All yes. playing themselves. Fictionalized uh, versions of themselves. Look, this is a world in which bloody Chevy Chase got an Oscar for... No, Cat- no, 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 no. No, within the movie they say... He never won anything. Yeah, this is a world it wasn't where even nominated. this is a world where people actually really like Chevy Chase <laughs> for some weird reason until they don't at the end. The world, however, adores Olivia Newton-John. Oh yeah, which, to be frank, that's pretty fair. Paul Hogan accidentally kills a nun. No, she's alive. No, she lives. She that's lives, right. but she's not doing well. Yeah, it's funny, but rote. I yeah, believe. it's a lot of the stuff that you'd expect. It plays it incredibly safe. They make jokes that they feel are going to be, oh, it's, it's edgy, but it's really not. It's a bit, it does get into a, some of the more touching parts are when uh, Paul Hogan is thinking about his career and how he just won't get that back. And how his... And how his fame affects the people closest to him. Yeah. Like his granddaughter. There's a whole plot line where 
he's gonna get Paul Hogan's gonna get knighted because of services to Australia and as a cultural icon as a cultural icon and everything. You know how musicians get knighthoods. Can Australians get knighted? Yeah, yeah, Australians can get knighted. Part of the Commonwealth. So yeah, I know, but I know that we brought back that I thought didn't Tony App. This is. Entirely irrelevant. But didn't Tony Abbott bring back the knighthood, but then Malcolm Turnbull got rid of it? No. I think it was... I think that was more along the lines of uh, the Australian government being able to nominate people. Okay. So the Queen can still decide to give yeah. members... Okay. I, yeah. I follow yeah, And, and they, the British... they say in the yeah. movie that Crocodile Dundee is the Queen's favourite movie. <laughs> so, so basically, he doesn't want to disappoint his granddaughter. Yeah. And, and, and it's... At those points where you really see Ho Paul Hogan yeah. attaching onto something real, yeah, but it's wrote it's a lot of skits yeah. where he's talking to another celebrity and like Reginald Val Johnson shows up as his best as, mate. as one of his mates, and you know it's a lot of the running down. Hey, here's a funny person who we haven't seen in a bit. <laughs> Um, I was going to say, so they just found every, hey, where's that person been from the 80s and 90s and put them all basically. in this movie. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. They show footage from that uh, that tourism campaign with Crocodile Dundee Jr. Yeah, they, they mentioned that. Stuff. They mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, this is bizarre dream sequence <laughs> uh, based around the scene in Crocodile Dundee. It's like, that's not a knife. That's a knife. But it's the quite reflective stuff that really works. But there's not that much of it. And a lot of it was so obviously filmed in Australia. (laughs) He's meant to be living in LA. Yeah, he's meant to be living in LA. And certain scenes were filmed in LA. Mm. However, there's a scene where Paul Hogan is talking to his manager. And they're sitting, you know, on the mountain near the Hollywood sign. And it's meant to be overlooking... You know, the city and everything in L.A. But it's this really, really dreadful, god-awful, like, green screen. Where it's so obvious that they're sitting in a studio. They're not sitting in L.A. Like, it's very obvious. But yeah, it's it's a nice, pleasant movie. If you're a fan of Paul Hogan, watch it. It just feels like it's a financing decision on the road to making something... More artistically interesting? Hopefully a new Crocodile Dundee movie. Um, yeah. Would a new Crocodile Dundee movie really work in 2020, though? Yeah. It, it, it depends. In a world where Hugh Jackman and Nicole Kidman and Kate Blanchett are Australia's new cultural icons on the world stage, is that version of, uh, of, of Australia still the one that the world is actively thinking about? Well, see, but you can play with that. Yeah, I suppose. If you get you a can... good script where you sort of play with the idea of how the world looks at Australia, then you can twist it into a nice bit of commentary on how currently we're not all that different. Yeah, and how things have changed and all of that. But also acknowledging I feel like the a lot of the not-so-great pe- past. So you remember that ad, the Crocodile Dundee one, The junior With one. Danny McBride yeah, and yeah. Liam Hemsworth. You remember the, that? The scam. It's not a scam. <laughs> they it's... they did the viral. They they seemed to be trying to trick people into thinking that there was an actual Crocodile Dundee sequel coming at yeah. the, the start of that campaign before they revealed it was just a tourism ad. I'm 
I still want that movie. I think it'd be neat. For Australian Screen, uh, this week we watched a movie called Little Fish, uh, because we were talking about... Uh, uh, the social pre- realism. The prequel to Tim Burton's Big Fish. Big Fish. <laughs> I made that same joke. Yes. Uh, Great minds think alike, Harley. Uh, I was Great gonna, minds? Uh, uh, I was going to say... say that, though? Great minds? I was mm-hmm. going to say to the lecturer, do I need to watch Big Fish for context? <laughs> but no, this is completely different. This is a very social realism piece. Yeah, I don't think in Big Fish there are scenes with heroin addicts. No. Uh, I don't know. Basically, it's, it's a Tim Burton movie. It might be implied. There's <laughs> <laughs> more coke than anything. This is a movie set in Little Saigon District outside of Sydney with the character Tracy Hart, played wonderfully by Kate Blanchett, uh, trying to escape her past, uh, but she becomes abroad in a drug deal. Yeah, um, that goes pretty wrong. But it's, it's a very neorealist piece. It's handheld camera, not... You know, found footage or anything like that, but it's sort of voyeuristic. Shot on the cheap. And it's shot on the cheap, which really helps. the The acting is great. The cinematography is what great. About some of the other cast: uh, Sam Hugo Neal. Weaving, Sam Neill, Hugo Weaving. Yeah, it, uh, there were a couple, only a few name actors. Yeah, in there, but, but they every scene with Hugo Weaving is excellent, mm. and Sam Neill brings really. He's simultaneously despicable, but also understandable performance in this. Uh, As a drug dealer who's retiring. Who just wants to get out of it. The way it's shot is fascinating. The performances are great. The story, eh. It it takes a while to get properly moving, but when it gets properly moving, you're like, oh, okay. I see why this would be one of the ones that we're told to watch. It's... There's not much I can actually say about it, but it's very well made. Yeah. That's my impressions of it. I don't think I'll remember it. Oh, Noni Hazelhurst's in this. Hmm. Hmm. From Play School. Oh, yeah, and Susie Porter from uh, Wentworth yeah. is also in it. Susie Couple Porter of from scenes. Wentworth and a lot of other things. <laughs> Couple of scenes. Yeah. Uh, we also watched with our family... The final episode of The Adventures of Skippy. Now, we talked about... Starting watching that series a bunch of weeks back. This fi- final episode. So, have you watched all of them? Of the Skippies. Oh no! Of the Adventures of Skippy, not of the original. Oh, gee, Skip. This but is of the, the new. Yeah. Oh, hey, Skippy. One. This is the one where Sonny is an, an adult, adult and has his own yeah. kids. And this final episode, I will. Oh, okay, this is the joke that I said to my dad after. We had to pause it. Pause the episode. This episode has cuckoldry, a boat, paint, and a hornet. And a kangaroo. And a kangaroo. What else could you want? Uh, So basically the plot of this episode, this final episode, um, is a film crew has come to Habitat. Habitat. And the, you know, the host of this documentary show... He's this uh, real charismatic uh, Gilderoy Lockhart type. Mm. And he sort of, over the course of the episode, it's implying that he wants to get married to the lady vet who works at Habitat. Her name is Kate. Who Sonny, who Sonny has, has 
feelings for yeah. and who I have routinely over the course of 37 episodes been like, oh yeah, they, they're totally going to end up together. Like, I'm going down with this so, ship so, like the captain of the Titanic. So this episode really stressed John out it, something fierce. Yeah, I was getting <laughs> angry over the course of it because characters' lives were in peril mm. from multiple different angles. Uh, Skippy was seeming to have a panic attack, mm. being like, uh, I went to go get an adult to come help you, but they were unconscious. Uh, shit, 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 shit. Where do I go? Where do I go? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go to the place where they're filming. Shit, shit, shit. Just st- stay safe. Shit. Uh, and Skippy inadvertently stops two somewhat endangered geese from uh, mating. mating. Uh, like... This is like this, once in a lifetime. This film cr- no, it's not once in a lifetime. They they specifically say, no, nah, probably next month they'll be, you know, back at it, back on the game. But <laughs> that that's far beyond when the film crew would be there to film it hmm. because they're doing a, you know, documentary se- documentary movie or series about... Like, Eastport. The mating danger, dances of birds. Like birds and, like, mating <laughs> dances and shit, which... Again, as a documentarian, this you gotta feel just a little bit weird about that. You gotta feel like you're sort of encroaching on something that wasn't meant for you. You're making avian porn at that point. <laughs> Jesus. But anyway, it, this episode and this series is just... I don't know, it's good entertainment. It's not for everyone, but it's good to sit down and watch if you want to see... Just some nice shots of wildlife and one of the meanest looking koalas I've ever seen in my life. Man, he's pissed. I'll show you a picture of him later. And he's just, it's in the opening credits and there's just a shot of him looking at the camera and he honestly looks so pissed off. He looks so, so angry. The joke that I keep saying to my parents whenever we see that koala is, those fucking kids. <laughs> Get them away from my tree. I can't deal with those fucking kids. Uh, Someone hasn't eaten their Vegemite today. He's like, just about to become a drop bear. Yeah, it's just which is an Australian drop thing for our yeah. international listeners. You know, the drop bear thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know how you have to eat Vegemite every morning or the drop bear will come for you. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to be dishonest with our international listeners that... They are absolutely may or may real. They absolutely exist. Uh, and they're absolutely <laughs> a threat we deal with every day. Uh, there are two reasons why we don't go outside uh, our houses at not- the moment. Drop bear attacks have dropped in number, but that's only because we're not going outside. Yeah. Uh, it's they've a scourge, I tell you. A they've scourge. increased in ferocity, though. Oh, yeah. But anyway, yeah, Adventures of Skippy is just a nice, kid-friendly, 90s kids show. We also watched the first episode, or we watched an episode of the original Skippy. More shirtless men in fight scenes than I expected. Just different in tone. I- well, it was the 60s. Yeah. yeah. And and also, like, people shocking koalas with... To try and poach them for another zoo. And yeah. I'm, I'm just sitting there like, Oh, 
that's probably why that koala is so pissed off. That makes perfect sense. It's like, I imagine they just try to shock that one koala. He just, like, he just, like, stonewalls it. The anger's like, keeping him alive. Nice try, asshole. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, moving um, on. We also found uh, the complete series of Smallville on 7+. I would have thought that you guys would have already seen that. No, actually. We watched um, episodes of Smallville way back when it first came out, but we sort of just lost interest. Because as we were quite young, watching serialized TV wasn't really something we did that often. No, like, it Um, was Charmed, Ghost Whisperer, and Simpsons. But that's not... Yeah. entirely serialized and that's only because during the day mum would put on the dvds and we would just watch them like yeah. i have an almost encyclopedic knowledge of charmed at this point like i if you show me like two minutes of an episode i can be like oh yeah that's the season that's probably the demon where that's in the episode but anyway this is what's your take on the new charmed haven't eh. watched it not interested it's just the tone is off i think how would you know if you haven't watched it? I've seen some scenes. It's just not... I'm eh. just not interested. It. I yeah, would have, fer- I would have preferred a continuation rather than a rehash. But anyway, Smallville. Uh, Tom Welling plays Clark Kent. Michael Rosenbaum as Lex Luthor. Yeah. A Lex Luthor who tries to, tries to very much try to become... Clark's best friend. Yeah, there's like, like a weird this even in the first episode there's this insist <laughs> insistent tension. Yeah, like uh Clark saves his life and Lex Luthor at a later point in the episode is like nothing will get between our friendship. And like, I just wanted Clark to turn and say, "Whoa, Lex. I don't even know you, but chill out, man. Stop trying to become best friends with a high school student." Uh it there's this weird sort of chemistry between Clark and Lex. Yeah. That has led to one of the original, really popular ships on the internet. Really? Yeah. The first was obviously Spock and Captain Kirk. And, uh, Clex, uh, Clark Lex, <laughs> was the second big one. Now, Smallville starts... So there were probably, you know, fan fictions fan on fiction. the internet somewhere. I think, feel like there was a ton of others between there. There was some Buffy ones and there was the X-Files. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, def- like, definitely. Oh, the, but, the X-Files thing, that's less a, you know, ship and more just the obvious, like, of course. Yeah. But, so there was there were probably fan fictions out there where Tom Welling takes Michael Rosenbaum in his strong, meaty hands and just massages... Michael Rosenbaum's bald head. Anyway, that got weird, John. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, his head is really smooth in this anyway, show. It's bizarre. Anyway, so, basically, uh, it's the young Superman story. Yeah, yeah. And it's really ambitious for the time, too. Oh, there are bits where the CGI is like, if it was only, like, five years later, they could have really pulled that off. Yeah, and really tightened it up. Yeah. But it's very ambitious. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, and the pilot episode sort of brings out all the stops mm. to, to begin the series with a bang. It Literally, really with does. a meteor shower that descends upon the town of Smallville. And it's... Like the world is ending. It's almost cataclysmic. Oh, yeah. You see people just getting nailed left and right by meteors. So, essentially, Clark even has to deal with the uh, second-hand trauma of kind of being the cause 
Oh yeah. Of yeah. all the damage that happened to Smallville. So he's got to really deal with that too. I can't wait to watch some more mm. of it. Um, and it's, I, and I can't get over like just spotting all of the actors that appear in future DC stuff. Yeah, like uh, the person who plays Clark's mother, Martha, in this plays L- Lena. Oh, plays uh, Lex Luthor's mother, mother in Supergirl. Supergirl. So the moment she comes on screen, I'm like, I don't trust her. I don't trust you. I don't trust her. I've seen her in too many things to trust this woman. <laughs> uh, I don't. I just, she's got an untrustworthy face. And that's not a slight against the actress. I'm sure she's a perfectly lovely person. But I'm, I'm just used to seeing her as just a colossal bitch. And also, like, oddly enough, there's a scene in a graveyard. Yeah, it's actually... Bit kind of intense. It's an intense looking show. There are spooky moments in this show. I, you didn't tell me this was a spooky show, Harley. I, that scene where Lex Luthor's in the cornfield, he's running away from the danger. He just looks up and sees a guy, like, like sp- hung up like a scarecrow. hung up like a scarecrow with an S painted on his chest. Yeah, with, it's with like meteors and red skies like behind him. Like you didn't tell me this intense. was scary. You didn't tell me that this was Stephen King. It looks like a Stephen King thing, though. Yeah. Anyway, can't wait to yeah. watch some more of it. Perhaps tonight. Yeah. Uh, and just I've got say, four months to watch the first four, five seasons, so better get cracking. Also, Six months to watch. Yeah. The rest. And also, I just can't remove the Allison Mack thing from my mind when I'm watching it. Yeah. Which or, makes or a lot of Nexium stuff. Which makes some of the lines makes, a bit. Oh yeah, it makes <gasps> some of the lines just really. Really unfortunate what a weird, with all the context. What a weird, weird turn. Oh, yeah, I know. definitely. Apparently that stuff was starting to happen as the final few seasons of Smallville mm. were starting to wrap up. Mm. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Look uh, up Nexium. It's... HBO, HBO is making a documentary series about it. Yeah, yeah probably such, wait for that then. It's such an awful, awful story of just awful people doing bad things to good people. Yeah. Uh, we also watched The a Invisible movie. Man. Yes! Man. Uh, the yes. Lee Winnell masterpiece. masterpiece. Absolutely excellent. So it follows Elizabeth... Now, I am I get these two confused. Elizabeth it is Elizabeth Moss, Moss right? There you go. Yes, it's not the other one, okay. It follows Elizabeth Moss as Cecilia, who escapes her abusive boyfriend, Adrian Griffin. Adrian Griffin being the titular Invisible Invisible Man. Man. An expert in optics, he has found a way to become invisible. invisible. So it's this really creepy... Oh, yeah, it's... I don't want to spoil how, if that makes sense. Yeah. But suffice it to say that it is... It doesn't become less creepy when you find out how he's done it. Mm-hmm. It, it's it actually becomes more creepy. worse. It, yeah, it's even worse because it thematically it re-emphasizes how awful this person is. And plus, it also when you find out how he's doing it, it also gets a bit creepier when you actually see how he's doing it. Oh yeah, definitely. Oh, I just but hate yeah, how it looks. <laughs> this movie is excellent. It the the way that it's filmed, where its use of negative space and camera movement makes you think, even in scenes before he turns invisible, you think to yourself, "Oh shit, he's probably there." And I uh, during the opening scene of the movie where she's escaping from his 
really nice looking mansion that's ma- legitimately just made up of three different locations. Oh, I I hated the look of that mansion. I hate that modernist style. I really do. <laughs> it looks so artificial, and I like, I like it. I like a cozy mansion. I like hmm. I like a fire a fireplace and wood panels and things. You don't want it to look so artificial. You want it yeah. to feel lived in. Yeah. But it goes to show the detachment that like, oh, Griffin has. He's completely from detached everybody from else. humanity. Like, characters talk about him like he's... He's just a monster, basically. Yeah. He's a monster. He's not... I don't think you can really call him human in any real sense. The way he manipulates people. And, and you... the way he has created a dent in this woman's spirit and the best is thing is horrific. You, you rarely see him physically in person oh yeah definitely yeah that's the real clincher for me he's played by the guy who plays luke in in haunting Hill house yeah and it's a, such a different turn from him but you feel as though he's always there like he could be yeah and only Lee Winnell knows which scenes the invisible man is actually there and which ones he's not and he said, I'm never telling anyone. It's, yeah, there are some very smart scares in that. Oh, yeah. Mm. It's a good modernization of the Invisible Man Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. If they can carry on this idea for the, the sort rest of, of the universal monsters like Jekyll and Hyde and Frankenstein well, and the well, this, Man. Well, this should uh, excite you. Is um, Just like two weeks ago now, Lee Whannell is reported is, is in talks to write and direct a Wolfman movie starring Ryan Let Gosling. Him. Let him. Ooh. Let him. Because he's got such a way of make. He's managed to make the Invisible Man really work in a modern context. And it shows how OP invisibility actually is. Oh, yeah. Like, the fight scene in the hallway is Oh, chilling. Oh. It's chilling how he just absolutely demolishes people. Because, like, that's... it. Before seeing this, I never considered invisibility as terrifying, but it's this and Hollow Man Yeah, that really get down to how scary it is. There's and a brilliant think, line from yeah. Hollow Man where it's, it's amazing what you can do when you don't have to look at yourself in the mirror anymore. Yeah, and, and it's it's just a very well done, taut, tension filled film that doesn't go for the easy topics. No, it's a very hardcore, sad story about how this man has just and it, it and it gets really hurt this woman, and it's yeah. terrible, but it's also just very well done. There's a funny story about how. The how Elizabeth Moss wanted to have the actor who plays Adrian on on set so she can, you know, do the scenes where she's talking to the Invisible Man and have that sort of relationship there. That connection. That connection there. Because it is hard to yeah. talk to someone who's not there. And later, uh, when doing the press tour, she said, you know, I didn't actually need him to be there for many of them. But he just cracks me up so much on set. That it's just so funny to see a six-foot person in a green leotard. And, <laughs> um, and it's like, okay, fair enough, you got him. And <laughs> there were some interviews done with Lee Winnell where he talks about how people ask him about the movie and what it means. And he said, I am the 
I'm the writer. I am the least qualified person to talk about what it means. Yeah, and he said that he deliberately trusted Elizabeth Moss to put all that through the performance. Yeah. Because he did feel up to telling people yeah. how to feel about it. Yeah, but it's pretty obvious what they're going for. Yeah. Yeah, so very excellent. Watch it. The uh, music is also great by Benjamin Wolfish. It's got this really creepy techno vibe that fits with the villain so brilliantly. Mm. Uh, so that's what we've seen within the week. Let's go uh, to the other movie we watched yesterday. So he- here's the awful trailer for Lake Placid versus about? It's a spectacular trailer. In the wild, there can be only one predator at the top of the food chain. And no predator will settle for number two. Lake Placid versus Anaconda. They plan to crossbreed a killer crocodile. My father spent most of his life perfecting the blood orchid serum. With a giant anaconda. But it required creating a hybrid. First bites, always the worst. But now... I've never seen anything like that in my life. The terror has been unleashed. Just another day at the office. We're gonna find that snake before she lays her eggs. I need those baby crocodiles alive. And the hunt is on for their favorite food. (laughs) Sorority girls. I'm bored. Make them swim. Get in the water. They're giving Hell Week a whole new meaning. Mama didn't raise no fool. Fancy Butler. That is one big ass snake. Looks like your abstraction team just got extracted. Lake Placid versus Anaconda. Now on DVD and Digital HD. That was the absolutely outstanding trailer for Lake Placid versus Anaconda. Why do you feel the need to lie to them, Lawson? Oh, it's brilliant. What are you talking about? We watched the trailer before we watched the movie, and as the trailer was going on, a dark cloud (laughs) came over me, (laughs) where I was like, oh, Jesus. I was just like, I really liked Lake Placid. Now we're here. I liked Lake Placid. I liked Anaconda. This movie has two characters who I give a shit about, and the rest can die. Three, actually. Three. It is, again, a sci-fi original movie. This one's directed by A.B. Stone. Now, Sheriff Reba, who I talked about in the missing audio from last week, she's played by Yancey Butler. She used to be a poacher in Lake Placid 3, then she became a fish and game warden in Lake Placid 4, and now she's Sheriff in in this one because the other sheriffs keep either getting eaten or resigning because being sheriff in Lake Placid is like being the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher at Hogwarts. Reba teams up with fish and game officer Will Tull, who's played by Corin Nemec, after an ill-judged attempt by pharmaceutical giant Wexel Hall to obtain one of Lake Placid's notorious crocodiles for an experiment not only causes a breach in the electric fence that surrounds the lake, but also unleashes three giant anacondas into the area as well. Two anacondas. Two? I thought there were three. 
No, two come out of the truck. Yeah. Truck. Yeah. Okay. A male and a female. So why don't we just go around and and say what we all thought of Lake Placid versus Anaconda? Why don't you start us off, Sean? I'm disappointed by the snakes. I thought they were going to bring it back, but no, this is a very croc-centric movie, and that disappoints me. The CGI is just terrible. It's just bad. There are no redeeming moments. Three. I cared about three characters, and that's about it. Who are the three characters, out of interest? The goth girl, because I, I liked her attitude, even though some of the lines were quite obvious. The dumb deputy. Ferguson. Ferguson, who just bumbles his way through life. I'm amazed he's still alive. <laughs> and Reba, because, I don't know, I liked her attitude. Just the kind of done with it. She, she, the actress seems done with it. So that carries on to the character. Like the first time we saw her go on screen, we're like, "Nah, she's done with it." <laughs> it's interesting because she is increasingly less done with it the more the movies go on. This is her at her most engaged, well, at her least done with it. Like she is, she is in the third one so prickly and so like, "Oh, I can't even believe this stupid fucking premise." But by the time we get, this is the one where they've shaved off all those sharp edges the most. Money is a great motivator, Lawson. It's a consistent oh, paycheck. and this movie has some terrible acting. Anyway, terrible ADR. We'll, we'll get that. To guy that guy on the boat when he says, That's a $200 rope! Very funny, Andrew. That was a $200 rope. We'll get to it. Fucking run the line again. Jesus Christ. I'm so happy right now. <laughs> I'm so happy right now. I found one. I found one that has destroyed you. You're always so positive about everything. This has some positives. I said my positives, but it's overall just not good. For me, much like with Jurassic World, not too much of a fan of the whole corporate thing. No, it's, uh, it's That always weak. tends to bog down. It's like uh, this movie is this three different thing. movies, and I don't like the corporation um, segment. It's a Wayland yutani ripoff. Yeah. I've been Even the Wayland yutani thing's lame. No, I actually like the Wayland yutani Corporation thing in Alien and uh, Alien vs. Predator. I actually really dig that, because it works with its aliens. The, the, the Anaconda thing, though, is just stupid, because they want to use anacondas for life-saving serum or something. It just doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't there's no work. logic to it. When it's alien xenomorphs, that makes sense. I have to go back. So, the Crocs kind of... Look, the Crocs way. Th- what was the tagline again, Lawson? Hang on. Snakes on the lake, crocs on the dock, I think. Wasn't it whoever wins, we all lose? No, that was something that I said. That's from Alien vs. Predator. Oh. Uh, but it kind of works for this. It's not good, but then again, it's a sci-fi original. I can't say I'm disappointed. It's a severe, severe step down from Lake Placid. And a severe and step Anaconda. down Anaconda. I wasn't the biggest fan of Anaconda, but at least that had sort of it stuff had going on. It had that whole boat on the lake, People apocalypse now, other. heart of darkness shit going on. It wasn't realized well in Anaconda, but it was still there. But in this, we don't really have that. It's the least imbalanced versus movie I've seen. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll get into that, though. Uh, Lawson? So, I mentioned in the Lost Audio last week that... There is sort of a mounting professionalism to the Lake Placid movies, where by the time you get to Lake Placid 4, it's actually a halfway decent creature feature. All of that mounting professionalism professionalism is totally undone in this it movie. It bottoms out. It bottoms out. This is the stupidest 
of any of them. This is the most amateurish of any of them. And this is a comedy. I just can't tell if that's intentional or not. There are moments that I think that the absurdity of it is intentional. I think at times that they've realized the inherent stupidity of the premise and have decided to double down on that. But there are but they're other... just bad at doubling down on yeah. it. But there are other times where I wonder if that's the case. The movie doesn't always seem sly enough for that to be intentional. In any case, this is, I think this is an intermittently amusing movie, not a thrilling or scary one, and a, a deeply stupid and incompetent one as well. I think maybe one of the first things to talk about is the integration of both of these franchises into the same film. I think it's struggling to do that. Definitely. Poorly done. The snakes are barely there. I spoke I spoke a few weeks back when I did the Anaconda sequels about the increasingly dull corporate intrigue stuff. The science mumbo-jumbo that they bring in to keep the snakes in play. And I'm so disappointed that they insisted on forcing that into this movie. There are two returning characters from Lake Placid, but there are none from the Anaconda franchise. I think the evil CEO lady is supposed to be John Rhys-Davies' daughter. John Reese davies from the third and fourth Anaconda movie. She said it was her father's legacy. Yeah. But even within the film, the franchises are really sort of curiously separate. The snakes only interact with the crocodiles three times. Yeah. The, and there's only really one crossover player for most of it. You you get Robert England as Jim Bickerman, who was in Lake Placid 4, and they retcon ridiculously that he survived the crocodile attack. That clearly killed him at the end of Lake Placid 4 but it has only mauled him in this film. But he's he's also the only one that really crosses between the two franchises. He spends a lot of time with the Anaconda people and the Lake Placid people. So, he, well, he is a Lake Placid guy spending time with the Anaconda people. And it's not really until the very last face-off that we get any, any other overview. It's like two different movies. Yeah. Yeah. And it does neither particularly well. Yeah, there just isn't a good reason for this to exist beyond the gimmick of Lake Placid versus Anaconda. In a lot of these versus movies, uh, Alien versus Predator, Freddy Freddy versus Jason, you get a balance between not only the presence of the characters, but also how many kills they get. Yeah, Alien versus Predator, you get a lot of both interaction and integration, and also a comparable amount yeah. of kills from both. Yeah. Mainly, it's In their own predators styles. killing aliens. Yeah. You know, it melds together. It's not the perfect movie, but it melds together. Freddy vs. Jason. It's not great, but it's well integrated. Yeah. We get a good balance. This has no balance. This is a Lake Placid movie with Anaconda in it, too. Yeah. It's... The crocodiles get way more kills. Um, which I was disappointed. So I wanted my snakes to pull it back at the end. The crocodiles definitely won this one, I reckon. Yeah. I'm, I've been watching... I've been liking the Lake Placid movies up till now, so I've been seeing the crocodiles do their thing a lot more than they did in the first Lake Placid, which only had that two-person body count. They've they've got a lot more uh, munching done in 2, 3, and 4. So I was, I was you know... I know what they can do. <laughs> but, yeah, that's the whole thing. If the premise of the movie is the crocodiles versus the anacondas, then the fact that those parts of it are so 
sort of thrown off. They're sort of just done because they feel like they need to do it. It's not because the movie doesn't really make a big moment out of them, you know? Even though it's what we're there for, it's it's what it says on the tin, you know? But when we actually get to it, it's sort of anticlimactic. And it's actually the, the moments where the different animals are terrorizing the humans that that's the best stuff. Yeah, that's, that's true. disappointing. I did like seeing one of the anacondas like just crush a crocodile. That was cool. And we also see an anaconda crush a medium-sized SUV. Yeah. Which, that's that pretty cool. Neat. And But the crocodile also gets what I think is the best kill in the movie, where it flings the anaconda up <laughs> into the sky, taking out the helicopter by, you know, gunking up the blades of it. For that kill, it's like in Lord of the Rings. Extra points on that one. That one counts for extra. Well, yeah, because it was the snake and a couple of guys in the helicopter. Yeah, exactly. I, I would like to talk about, before we go too deep into some of the negativity, because I think we've all got a lot of negative okay. things to say about the movie, I would like to talk about the sorority girls. Because oh, that was right. my favourite part of this whole movie, was how ridiculous that whole thing was. <laughs> the absolutely extraordinary, over-the-top performance by this actress Laura Dale as as Tiffany, the leader of the sorority girls who is hazing these pledges on the beach. Can I just ask quickly, there is an unrated version of this movie. I don't know what... We watched the one that was on you. Okay, I don't know whether that was it. Was there a copious amount of nudity? No, there was no. implied nudity. Just implied. Then you watched the rated version. I watched the unrated version where there are a lot more, there's a lot more nudity in those those segments. Same amount of kills though? The difference in the sci-fi unrated versions, any of them, seems only to be nudity. But it's not like characterization or anything like that, God forbid. I really loved the goofy tone that this this stuff was, was striking. With th- this actress, Laura Dale, as Tiffany, she's not giving a good performance. Oh, she's God, given no, Jesus Christ. She's no. given a really silly performance, but it's so fun to watch her be so nasty. Like when He kind of knows it, too. Yeah, when the crocodiles attack and all the sorority girls get up and start running away and she and her, her you know, henchmen... What are you doing getting out of the water? <laughs> yeah. When she and her henchmen are cornered by that crocodile and she's like, wait, I've got an idea. And she pushes her friend to the crocodile to eat and runs away and she catches up to the other sorority girls and they're like, oh, where is she? What happened to her? She says, it was awful. I did everything I could to save her. <laughs> I mean, that is this movie at its most. I, I you at its most. I, w- I was saying before at the top about how I'm never quite sure if this movie knows if it's being funny or not, whether it knows it's a comedy. That that stuff is the stuff where I most think that the movie knows that it's that it's camp, that it's being funny intentionally. The other stuff, not so much. But the sorority stuff with the crocodiles and then later on with the snake is the stuff where I think the movie is most successful at finding a tone that works. I think that's where it's at its most honest. Yeah. And you, I really hate to see it when movies like this, there's a lot to be said about reaching for more. There's a lot to be said about having big ideas, but at some point you have to play to your limitations. And a sci-fi original movie is just simply not going to be more 
than what it is. And it can be a lot more than this, though. Like all of the other Lake Placid sci fi ones were a lot more than this. This is curiously inept. Yeah, I'm just confused by the motivation with the sorority thing. Like, go in the water and the guys from the fraternity will be interested in you. Like, how does it, how does that follow? How does that track? That doesn't make any logical sense. Like, what? Are you going to put in a good word? What if, what if the guys from this fraternity are just interested in getting to know them on a human-to-human level, less on, like, the base physicality, like, less 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 of a well, bacchanal of the is... flesh, more of a bacchanal of the mind. I mean, it's the hazing. I mean, they're there to pretend to be, you know, creatures in the water to, to freak them out. Yeah, but, like, there's only two of them. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, what does that prove? It's like, I want you to go in the water if you really want to be in the sorority. And it's like, you're on a lakeside probably going to go in the water anyway exactly she wants to go into the water so that they can scare them i don't i'm not seeing what's confusing you here and yeah like yeah great success uh but when those two guys piss off with two of the girls it's like get back in the water why what's the motivation because it's a dance dance kind of thing did the other guys who were under there were they so stupid that they never came up for air (laughs) like are they it's... just a bunch of dead frat bros in the lake? <laughs> like, the other guys didn't make are, it. Are, are you hoping that, like, 30 minutes later, they'll remember, shit, that's right, you know I, you know what I forgot? Oxygen. I kind of need that to live. You're overthinking this. It's just... <laughs> the body's just... You're overthinking this. It's, it's just purely... It's to be cruel. It's to be yeah. cruel. It's to make them, it's to haze them, to make them perform like dancing monkeys. That's all it is. Tiffany is not a member of Mensa. She, she's not got some like grand plan that goes, she just, you, you watch her behavior. She's the one mandating this stuff. She just likes telling people what to do. She's mean spirit. Yeah, but like tell people what to do with a little bit of a, like, motivation behind no. it, you know? Petty evil is always the most effective evil. Okay, you know who was pettily evil and had a plan? The guy in Invisible Man. That was petty evil. Needless evil. But he was smart about it. Yeah, but we're also talking She's... about two different... We're talking about a sorority girl that's hazing people. We're not talking about the villain of the movie. We're talking about sort of this mean character in the movie. She's not like the arch villain of Lake Placid versus Anaconda. She doesn't have some grand plan that she's trying to orchestrate. She's just a a sorority girl that's trying to haze new recruits. I'm not seeing what is confusing you so much about this. Okay, and how about this? Like, I'm assuming the sorority has a hierarchy, right? She's got her offsider, her right-hand woman, so to speak. Now that they're dead... Does the goth girl become the of the sorority? Well, presumably there are more sorority people back at the college. There are two existing sorority girls that are there with all the pledges. Um, that's a pretty, like... Oh, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. There, that's a pretty, like, you know... That's not a sorority if you've only got two people. That's, like, two friends. That's, that's roommates. That's all that is. <laughs> fair enough. I'm just glad we don't have that sort of structure... Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Australia. I think that's a nightmare. I don't understand why anyone would ever want to join a sorority or a fraternity. I think it's, it's just such a toxic culture. Tribal. Yeah. It's mm. it's stupid. Um. But I like the uh, stealing the 
op- opposing colleges like animal mascot yeah i like that that's like fun. like how they did it in uh, monsters, monsters university, university. They still it's that just that dumb thing. looking pig thing but i i do think that this sorority stuff is the most light-footed in the movie it's the most fun stuff that we exactly. get exactly it's definitely as much as i sort of rag on it there's that lovely bit of character work between the daughter of the fish and game guy with this series big notes fish and game but anyway there's that little bit of dialogue between the daughter of the fish and game bloke, whose name I don't care about, and the goth chick. And they've got a nice little bit of character building, and they're two of the characters I actively gave a shit about. Them yeah. and that really sad-looking woman. Like, what was her deal? I thought she was going to end up being connected to the crocodiles. The sheriff? Or something. No, 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 no the sad girl. The one who they told, dig a hole. But then, she, as she's, oh yeah, as she, yeah. She, as she's digging, she's sitting in the hole. It's like, why are you sitting and it's in like, the hole? Come on, that's not smart. That's not a good way to dig a hole. No, but it's definitely the saddest way to dig a hole. Just around yourself. I thought she was going to be connected oh. to the crocodiles. Like she was going to queen crab it, be like friends with them or whatever, controlling them with her mind. It's just a joke. It's you're overthinking this. We are, and admittedly, this is a trap we've set for ourselves that we're doing deep analysis. We're trying to do deep analysis of Lake Placid versus. Anaconda. I'm just imagining the movie that I would make. We're doing what's on the tin, Lawson. But I mean, you get a lot of those those kinds of characters that are just there for the joke. You get Deputy Ferguson, the moron Barney Fife police officer. <laughs> He, he didn't work quite quite as well for me as he did for you. He uh, he grated a bit. As a inherently comedic character, I have to give some credit to the actor of it. He played the innocent naivety very well. Holly, what was what was the thing that you said when I uh, asked? The actor how is did he Oliver be- Walker. What was that thing that I said? What that you said when I when I asked the question? How did he become a cop in the first place? And how did he become deputy? The thing that you said if I can cast my mind back to yesterday morning, was he was the only one who went into the sensitivity name. <laughs> and yeah, I see that. Otherwise, how the hell do they give him a gun? Uh, well... He looks like he Reba had to. Reba had to. Morning. Okay, Reba had to volunteer to become sheriff. I don't like... That's a thing. I don't understand, having seen the previous movies, how she is sheriff. She was a poacher in Lake Placid 3. Then she became a fish and game warden, and now she's sheriff? Like, like I don't know, do you, it's like a drug dealer going to being, like, a hospital administrator to, to being a police <laughs> officer. I mean, it doesn't make sense. That's true. Yeah. With with the Anaconda character in this, the the villainous CEO character has her offsider, the mercenary fella, who is both soulless and heartless, but also kind of conscience yeah uh, side of that story which was just very weird that, yeah he doesn't make any sense like the turn that he makes at the end is just way too sudden and yeah he's nothing. like in the anaconda and he's like you know what fair enough i'm gonna give my life for the let's off a bloody grenade and blows himself up i did love how the head lands Next to the CEO lady. That was funny. I mean, the corporate stuff is such an albatross around this thing's neck. Absolutely. It holds it down. And it is for those Anaconda stuff as well. Like, that's what I was saying back in the very first episode of this trilogy. Is like, I just can't get behind the snakes because of what they do with snakes. Yeah. 
the the mayor character they introduce at the start of the movie, the really desperate sort of uh, Amity Bay type mayor. Yeah. They drop that character like a potato wrapped in tinfoil. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of just random throwaway stuff here. Free ice cream! I have vouchers for free ice cream! Come come talk to the mayor, that person you care about like once every two years. <laughs> Congratulations. Here's a free voucher for ice cream, probably from the store that my wife owns. Nepotism. I mean, it's all just stereotypes. All of these is stereotypes. There is no deeper characterization than that the screenplay by a guy named berkeley anderson it's so clunky and lifeless and at times again i can't place whether he knows what he's doing when he's writing this whether he knows that he's writing a comedy there are moments when he does. Yeah, like the exactly. Part where at the beginning in the truck, how people are pointing guns at each other, and the scientist walks past like, hey, don't point your guns at me, I'm just getting my yeah. shit. Well, the sorority stuff, you know, the pushing yeah. the friend to the, the, the crocodile, that's a joke. But it's a, Yes, yes, and, and it, the, it fulfills we, the baseline of joke. But we also have a moment it's where... It's a joke that has happened since the dawn of time, but, but yes, I agree with you, it fits under the classification. Jaco. We so, also have a moment near the top where Tully is going through hmm. the empty nester stuff and he walks into his daughter's room. <laughs> Garbage fire of a person. And <laughs> Jesus like, Christ. We have a legitimately sincere moment there. Then it was like, yeah, but it's top What's in, this doing it's here? It's top entailed by him going to the kitchen and being like, well, this milk is off. And, and being... And, and <laughs> it's like all a the bit food of, is off. It's like she hasn't the, been gone that long. It's like she's been gone like, what? She's still in the same town? So max, let's say max a week, two weeks. Sure. How in the hell has your life devolved so quickly into... Looking in the fridge, seeing nothing but maybe a piece of cake and being like, mm, okay. Like, what? How How are you working for Fish and Game? I would assume that they would want a l- people who are a little bit more together. Well, at least, the look. Hey, they hired a poacher time. in the last one. The they, Fish and really... Game people hired a poacher. Yeah. They're not really At least that person has people. practical experience out in the wild. This person looks like he could die of starvation in a shopping... And you're talking, Harley, about the, that genuine moment. Like, that's the thing. That's the thing with this movie's confused tone, is there are moments like that. There are moments where all the corporate stuff, for instance, where this movie's playing it straight. It's playing it totally straight. And the laughs come because it's so inept at playing it straight. Mm. So I just can't... I don't know what movie everyone thought they were making. I can pick out certain people and there think... There were three different movies. Yeah, exactly. I can pick out certain people and tell you what movie they thought they were in. But as a whole, as like a as like a mission statement for the movie, what this this director thought he was making, like, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that vision is. I don't know if that's a comedy. I don't know whether that's a satire. And I don't know whether that's like a... He thought he was making a legitimately thrilling horror film. I don't know what his... Because I, I can tell you straight out, it's not that third one. No. <laughs> Jesus God, no. No, they somehow make Robert Englund the least interesting... Oh, and it's all just C-list actors and production values. I mean, I, I think only Yancey Butler as Reba 
and Robert England, as bored as he seems, only they give anything approaching an actual legitimate performance in this movie, a legitimately decent one. I'm not saying that they are necessarily decent. I'm saying that they come the close to it, the closest to it. I think the goth girl does okay. Not great lines. I think Yan- Yancey Butler is the saving grace of the cast as Reba. Definitely, yeah. She's putting the most into it. Definitely. And it looks so terrible. The whole movie just looks oh, it's terrible. Bad looking it's movie. Cheap. And it's... It's like, have you ever heard of colour grading, my boy? And it's the, it's not even the worst CG of the series. <laughs> there have been much... How? What? There have been much worse th- CG than that in, like, the Anaconda sequels. What? Were they oh, make- the previous shit from last week. Yeah. What, what? Were they making some of the bloody CGI on Max from the 80s? Like, what happened? Like, I, how yeah. does it get worse than this? Well, it was it was made before this was. This is a 2015 movie. I'm talking about movies from 2007 that are sci-fi original movies. You know, imagine that, if you will. First Bloody Lake Plus had a better CGI than this movie. Yeah, it had more care put into it. It's, it's just this... It's inept. It's so amateurish and incompetent. It's such a disappointing step down from what they were building up to in the previous Lake Placid movies and what they returned to with Lake Placid Legacy. It's having an identity crisis for its entire runtime, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's like there are moments where it's like, oh, we're comedy, we're trying to, you know, poke fun at the thing, like the part where the goons get out of the car and walk away she opens the door and is like aham closes the door they have to go back and open the door for her and it's like okay fair enough that's a gag that just reminded me because they're there to go and find robert england in the bar yeah yeah so i don't understand if he if he is alive because he was clearly killed at the end of lake placid 4 but also at the end of lake placid 4 he is the one that caused all of those deaths he is the one that broke into the the electric fence surrounded lake to try and poach crocodiles he took a child hostage to try and make his escape really when the cops showed up if he's not dead he's in prison yeah he should be this this is a very this this is a movie that seems like it's been cobbled together Frankenstein-like from the title, you know? It's not a movie that has a legitimate reason for being. It is a movie that someone at Sci-Fi said, we have the rights to Anaconda, we have the rights to Lake Placid, let's make Lake Placid versus Anaconda. And then it became someone else's problem to reverse engineer a movie based on that title. That's yeah, all this is. Yeah, became A.B. Stone and Berkeley Anderson's problem. <laughs> it's, it's, and I, I, I was saying to, to Jean before that this is not even the worst of the sci-fi movies. I mean, Boa versus Python is worse than this. Both of the Anaconda sci-fi sequels are worse than this. See, I think it's in, it's in perspective. Those aren't tied. Boa versus whatever is dime store trash, but it's not... It's not like it's connected to a good movie. This was. This has turned from Lake Placid to Lake Flaccid. <laughs> we're saving that one. Of course we're saving that one. <laughs> Most of my gags are staying. No, I was saying, were you saving that one? I just came up with it, okay. if I'm going to be completely honest. <laughs> just just as you were talking, the idea generated in my mind, and I was like, oh, that's funny. You probably saw me just smile to myself and be like, 
Yeah, you're funny. You're a funny guy. Tell a joke, funny guy. Tell a joke, moron. But I mean, even the C- the CGI is terrible, yeah. But even the way that it's integrated into the world, the way that it seems to ex- the way that it exists within the space, even that's worse than yeah. Lake Placid three and four. Like the the thing with Lake Placid, the CG was a bit fuzzy, but you can still feel it there. It was in still an anaconda. It's like anaconda. you can tell they're scared of a snake. Yeah. It's still physically there. In this, you never feel like they're it's like there. It's like you're getting attacked by holograms. <laughs> that's that's a very good way to put it, actually. That really does describe the unreality of... It looks like the hologram's going to shiver, and it's going to be just like a metal crocodile. And you know what's the most disappointing part of that? No, or very little practical gore. We got some great practical gore in Lake Placid. Oh, yeah. Got some decent... Practical stuff and practical effects work in Anaconda. Practical stuff in Anaconda. In this, it's like they didn't give a shit. And it's also, admittedly, it's also like the budget and the time frame that they've got of to course. do these things. Mm. You know, it's so much more efficient if you're a low budget cheap horror movie shooting in Bulgaria or wherever it was to just do that and then add the blood in in post rather than set up all of the set up all of the, the the squibs and the blood packs and then have everyone you know make maintain the consistency and okay then then realize that maybe you're not going to be able to do some of the CGI things that you want and pair it back make a more reasonable film be smart about it use your use your weaknesses as a strength don't don't be like Hercules and be like you know what? I'm going to moonlight by working in a china shop. It's, it's, yeah. It's searching for an ending as well. It doesn't have a good ending. No. It's incredibly anticlimactic, and it sort of reinforces the pointlessness of the whole story. Yeah, it it does. And it emphasizes that the filmmakers just, they don't know where to go. They don't know where to take this. The the face-off at the end, such as it is, is, is really just the two different groups of characters meeting and then... In a field. In a field. And then the animals kill each other and then one guy kills a snake. And that's it. That's the end of the movie. Yeah. No, then another crocodile pops out of the water. Yeah, which was kind of pointless. Which they all shoot to get some early executed gangland style. But, yeah. I mean, it's probably a good thing we ran so long in the what we've been watching because I really don't have a lot to say about this movie. <laughs> I think the opening, the music on the opening credits was too good for this movie. <laughs> the music, uh, yeah, I, th- yeah. I think that's stuff from the previous Lake Placid's. Probably. Mm. And like, oh, talk talk about the guy who works in the morgue. Oh, the guy who works in the morgue, uh, who like demolishes his chicken wings <laughs> while doing the autopsy. autopsy on the on the. Okay, so there were some practical effects. The the body piece is not great, but eh, okay. I could. It's uh, like, hey, uh, it's like they cut into a like a burnt tile. Oh, and they're trying they to to, to yeah. the, cut open the crocodile. Yeah, and the guy like uses his chicken wing to, to explain like, how someone the legs came could, apart like this. Like this. As I was sitting there, I was like, "That's a big Twinkie." It always weirds me out when I see the morgue attendants and stuff eating in those rooms. It's like how it's like, like oh, I didn't get time enough to have my lunch. Have your lunch after, then, dude. Kind of contaminating the scene by, like, by grossly 
talking while you're eating and being like, oh yeah, the thing came apart like this, and getting chicken stuff on the bloody dead hey, person's leg. And here's the thing, too. It's just like, I didn't get a chance to eat my lunch. Have a big dinner, dog. Come on. It's like, what? It's like, is your day so packed in this tiny little <laughs> hamlet of a town? I've got to stop the podcast for breaking news. Dave okay. Franco is playing Vanilla Ice in a biopic that has the tone of the disaster artist. Cool. You know, that works. I cannot argue with that casting. That's more it's interesting perfect, than Lake Placid versus Anaconda, for sure. Are we bringing Frosted Tips back? I don't know. Oh, God, hope not. Ice, ice, baby? Anyway. How much better would this movie have been if Vanilla Ice was there? Okay, okay, how about this? I mean, let's be uh, honest. Lake Placid vs. Anaconda 2015, right? Yes. And it's a film. Yes, I okay, think you so can roundly describe it as a film. The first episode of Smallville, right? Mm-hmm. 2001, TV show. The compositing job in that, not great, but ambitious. A little too mm. ambitious for the time, but it still sure. worked. This is 2015. The only thing I think kind of worked was seeing the the medium-sized SUV get crushed by an anaconda. I liked that. That worked for me. Seeing it get crushed worked. I mean, that has to count for something. That that snake was going, like, street fighter, just destroying M. Bison's car on that. But just and think I about it. I think that has to count for something. Just think about it. How strong would this anaconda have to be to crush that car, as well as cleave an entire crocodile in two with one whip of its tail? I did like how when the sorority girls were trying to drive away, they ran over one crocodile's head and just knocked another one over. It ends up on its back and it's like, oh, hey, come on. Uh, help me. That's not nice. I was like, he's just, he's struggling now. I was like, come on. That's not nice. That yeah. actually made me feel sad about That made me feel sad crocodile. for the crocodile. The crocodile's had more character. Um, I feel like we're reaching the end of this conversation. There's really not a lot to say about this movie. I'm frankly surprised that we got almost 40 minutes on it. But before we go, let's say who our MVP was and what our favourite scene or sequence was in this movie. Lawson, why don't you start us off with that? <laughs> yeah. I, I actually forgot the name of the actress, so let me look it up here again. My MVP... My MVP is Laura Dale, who plays Tiffany, the sorority girl leader. I'm never having more fun than when she's on screen. It's it's not a good performance, and it's not a human performance either. But that's okay, because there are no humans in this movie. There are the, they are just stereotypes. And this is a fun stereotype, and it's... They all exist on a sliding scale yeah. of different kinds of crocodiles. It's, it's a very silly, over-the-top performance that just is the closest that this movie comes to making me have a really genuinely good time is is watching her hammered up like that and watching the sorority stuff happen like that's a better movie <laughs> is a movie just about these sorority girls running away from these crocodiles and making it that kind of absurd you know over the top comedic tone throughout that's a better movie which leads me to my favorite scene or sequence and it is the initial croc attack on the sorority girls up through to i mean I, this is extending it a bit but up through i suppose to to the car getting crushed by the anaconda that's the stuff that i i think a it's the most effective animal attack in the film we get the most carnage there but also it's it's again it's the best at it's the most successful tone that the movie strikes no definitely in its many different attempts at tone so how about you jean 
I've got a twofer for MVP. First MVP. Right. The talent, the talent in this movie, so outstanding that we cannot pick just one person as the most valued player. Okay. The script writer, I don't know his name. I don't care about his name, if I'm going to be frank. Uh, the best thing that he did was that the script had an end and has some funny moments. The second MVP is the tiny little crocodiles who eat that man alive. Oh, we didn't even get to talking about that, did we? The 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 child of that man. Disappears. The disaster The disaster of a hunter and then the child who is clearly dubbed by a grown man. Yeah. In post. It's like, I love you, son. I love you too, Dad. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so <laughs> bizarre. I am so glad that I'm your son and you are my father. And we didn't, I love you, Dad. And we didn't talk about the crococonda either at the very end. Well, it doesn't really lead into anything. Who cares? No. So, who cares? They didn't care. They didn't care enough to dub Boat Boy. Anyway, Sean? And favorite scene. Favorite scene. It's three different. Crushing the SUV. That man being killed by those tiny crocodiles. And, I hate to say it, probably when that guy says, Oh, come on, dude, that was a $200 rope! Very funny, Andrew. That was a $200 rope. <laughs> Such a dreadful line reading. That was so obviously ADR <sighs> that I can't fathom how someone said that, realized, oh, that was kind of a goofy line read. Well, again, this movie was shot... Let me finish, let me finish. ADR'd it, edited the movie together, was like, fine, fine. Sat down for the first screening and was like, yes. And then finally, somehow that got to my screen. And I can't fathom the immense stupidity that it would have had to take for that line to get through. Well, and also, um, I mean, this is shot in Europe and there's a lot of European actors in this doing American accents. So it seems clear that some of them weren't very good at it because they've been dubbed over a lot. Yeah. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ryan Brilly. You did your job poorly. I don't usually say that to people and I don't usually try to call out people. Like, I tried to swerve around calling the scriptwriter a bad writer. But I'm going to call you out. You kind of have to pick up your game, my lad. You did a bad job with this one, but you don't get a gold star. Ryan Brilly's okay. not not the writer. The no. ADR person oh. I'm talking about. ADR dialogue editor. Oh, yeah, and Kyle. Kyle, come pick up your re-recording game. Okay, so first, I'm going to get into some dishonorable mentions. Ryan Brilly, ADR and dialogue editor. Nicholas Cochran, ADR recordist. Tana David, ADR coordinator. Um, Travis McKay, ADR Mixer, who appears twice on the IMDb. Uh, Derek McGinley, ADR Mixer. So they had more than one. Oh, yeah. Uh, David Shelton, ADR Looping. Um, come on, guys. Okay, that's even worse. So it got through so many people. You've got a, you've got a big team. I know there's a lot of ADR to do. If the ADR doesn't work, just cut the little bit of him saying, it was a $200 row. (laughs) If, if you're going to do so much ADR... Perhaps just don't. Anyway. Uh, MVP. MVP. Let's stop being negative. Let's bring some positivity back into the podcast, lads. MVP, Yancey Butler. Fair enough. Sort of holds it all together with Herculean strength. Um, <laughs> Like Atlas holding up the world. Yeah. Decent, really the only decent performance in the whole thing. Even she doesn't give much of a shit. Yeah. Uh, my favorite moment, uh, seeing a crocodile <laughs> attempt to launch a... Snake into space, but actually launch it into the uh, 
propellers of a helicopter. Yeah. Works a, for a me. helicopter that I reckon is made out of balsa wood with how much it crumbles <laughs> when it hits the snake. That snake should have kept moving, <sighs> if I'm going to be honest. It should have ripped through that helicopter like it was my fist through wet paper. This movie's like, so stupid. <laughs> this movie's so stupid. <sighs> I just got to admit, I saw... I, I got a bit of a kick out of seeing the crocodile. The crocodile was like, a snake works for me. Little things. Though. So, okay, so in the end, who technically wins out of Anaconda or Lake Placid? Probably Lake Placid. It has higher priority in the film. Yeah. And no, I'm talking about, like, if you're just going by the fight between the animals. If you're not going by Kill Count, if you're not going by whatever. The, the crocodile. Who actually win? Because the crocodiles are, um, there are multitudes of crocodiles in that lake. There are still crocodiles there after the film ends. The anacondas are gone now. Okay. I'm more talking like on one-on-one fights between the crocodiles and the snakes. Who wins? I, I know that I'm moving even. the goalposts like nothing, but I'm trying to just find some way to okay. say that the snakes okay. win. How about this? You know who wins? The crococonda. The little baby one at the end. Okay. It gets to live. It gets to All live. Alright. Yeah. Anyway, Lawson, so please have something better next week. Well, next week, and I know you'll be very excited about this, John, we will be doing Austin Powers International Man of Mystery. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. The first of the Austin Powers trilogy. Which, if you would like to watch along at home, is available for streaming in Australia if you have a Netflix, Foxtel Now, or Stan subscription. That's going to be great. I hope you like it. I do. I'm looking at your face right now and I'm getting nothing from you. Well, that's for tomorrow's podcast. Yeah, that's, that's for next week's, week's podcast. podcast. Okay. Anyway. Keep the audience um, in suspense, Sean. Keep them coming back. You're keeping back. me in suspense. You just stonewalled me. Anyway. It, it, it was that was just as spooky as Elizabeth Moss at the end of Invisible Man. That was like the same level of just giving me absolutely nothing to work with. Anyway, so if you want to follow us on Twitter, our Twitter handles in the description. If you want to reach us at our blogs, you can find Lawson at X Do the Candy Counter. Uh, you can find John and I at On the Bright Side. Um, comment, rate. Subscribe, share it around to friends, please. Not, don't let us do this suffering alone. Share the parlor crew parlor ship. Uh, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have to say that's kind of what it's like watching Riverdale and wanting Jughead and Archie to kiss. Oh, it's 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 like you're shit. part of Davy Jones's crew, and you're just. You'll you cannot rest, right, until it, you cannot rest until it happens. You'll latch to it for like years. All right. Uh, anyway, I feel like I feel that was like kind of an out of Bill. nowhere. I feel like start talking Bill, about, but all right. Yeah, I feel like Bootstrap Bill in World's End, where he's actually part of the wall of the ship. He pulls his head out, but his brain is still there. Like uh, that's, that's how what I feel like Plastic right versus Anaconda does to you. I feel like I'm begging Orlando Bloom to just kill me. Anyway. So that's where you can find us. Shout it around to friends. Like I said before, um, I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be genreless. We had to pay for this. We had to pay to rent <laughs> I paid money. I own I a DVD this. copy of this. <laughs>